Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. So this morning, as been our habit, let's start at verse 1 in Jude. And again, I'm just trying to read up to what we're covering for that week. Um, Next week, we'll be reading the entire huge book of Jude, which will take us five minutes. Um, Today, we're going to be covering verses 17 through 21, just so you know where we're going this morning. And then next week, we'll cover 22 through 25. So let's start at verse 1. In Jude, Jude, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, a brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may peace and mercy, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you, beloved. While I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things, once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe, and angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh are exhibited as an example of undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Yet in the same way, these men also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these men revile the things which they do not understand and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the air of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feast when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these men that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. 
These are grumblers finding fault, following after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. And then our verses 17 through 21 that we're covering today. But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, in the last times there will be mockers, following after their own ungodly lust. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourself up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Our Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that there's power in your word because you take your word and you, through your Holy Spirit, apply it to our lives and cause it, causes us to become changed people for your glory. Lord, I pray today that I won't get in the way of your message, that your message will come through. We thank you for the opportunity to gather and to grow. We thank you for your mercies to us, and we thank you for this time in Christ's name. Amen. So we're coming to the end of the letter now. We have learned the characteristics of the apostates and about their behavior. We have seen several examples from the past of what happens to apostates. We have learned that we need to contend for the faith that we have been entrusted with. At the beginning of this letter, Jude reminded the true believers of their position in Christ, and now he's moving into the practical application of it. Here is the instruction for how we can contend for the faith. Not only are we to be defensive in our fight, but we also need to be offensive. It is clear there's a lack of discernment in this group of believers. They had allowed these apostates to coexist with them. Just like in Jude's time, we have lost the discernment to recognize false teachers. Paul had to deal with the Corinthian church for the same issue, a lack of discernment. In 2 Corinthians 11, 1 through 4, we read, I wish, and Paul says, I wish you would bear with me a little foolishness, but indeed you are bearing with me. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, so that in Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. That's a, a non-discerning church. This sounds exactly where we are at as a universal visible church. The visible church is more concerned about making sinners feel comfortable in their sin than they are in confronting them with the gospel. Many supposed pastors think the gospel is offensive, and instead of seeing sinners that have rebelled against God, they see them as victims. This is why we have so many churches that present a moralistic therapeutic God rather than the God of Scripture. Their view of God and man is that man is a victim and just needs to have a good life coach so that they can have their best life now. 
It is not a virtue to diminish doctrine. Rather, it is an affront to God. The visible church has no regard for what Scripture says, and for many they do all they can to soften and in many instances deny the doctrines of Scripture. There are very few churches that exercise church discipline, who, which is actually a ministry of love towards the one being disciplined. Matthew 18 gives very clear instruction to the church on disciplining those in unrepentant sin. It is not love to allow someone to continue in their sin and under the condemnation of our Lord. I have met so many professing believers that go to church every Sunday, all the while living like the world the rest of the week, living with their boyfriend or girlfriend, indulging the flat, their flesh in sinful ways and ignoring God. I got permission from this couple to share this following story with you. There's a couple that Cree and I know very well that God has saved, and they started going to a church. They began to study his word and started growing in Christ. They were living together in sin, but did not understand the biblical doctrine of holy sexuality until they got to those passages in the text. They went to their pastor at the time to ask if they should stop living and fornicating together. Well, this pastor was a false teacher because he did not call them to repentance and to stop the sinful behavior. I know it blows our mind that somebody can do that, but this is typical. This is typical what we're dealing with in the visible church. He had no fear of God and his word. They were never told that they needed to stop living together and to start living in obedience. Thankfully, this couple left that church because even though they were new to the faith, they read the Bible. They ended up getting married and now are growing and thriving in our Lord. They had more discernment than that pastor had. That pastor should be ranked out, yanked out of his office and called to repent. Jude does not leave his readers to figure out how to be discerning here at the end of the letter. He calls them to action, and just as they were called to action, so are we called to action. Notice he starts verse 17 with, But you, beloved, this is a distinction from the apostates. He's addressing the true believers who were governed by the Holy Spirit. The apostates were devoid of being controlled and changed by the Holy Spirit. They were incapable of pleasing God. Jude is reminding them of what he wrote at the beginning of the letter, that they were the called, that they were the special ones that God has put his special love on, and they were kept in him. We've made this the point that these believers Jude is writing to needed to be affirmed of that because of the attacks of the false teachers they needed to they were so shaken they needed to be reminded of their position in Christ now he says but you you are not to live in the way that these apostates do which leads us to our first point of action and these commands are for us today Jude continues in verse 17 which says but you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. What are we to remember? 
He tells us here, we are to remember the apostles' teaching. We have the privilege to have the complete canon, and we are to remember all of God's word. How can we remember that which we do not know or are not familiar with? We need to be in his word. As Jude called them to know the apostles' teaching, so is our command today. Throughout our study, we have seen that Jude is not merely giving information, but is giving a call to action with the information he is giving. To simply remember without action is useless. Jude has given us texts from the Old Testament and extra biblical material and now points us to the apostles' teaching. Jude is specifically reminding us that these false professors were warned about in the apostles' teaching. There are several places in scripture where the warnings were sounded about them. Jesus himself dealt with false professors while he was here on earth and warned believers about them. Jesus warns us in Matthew 24, 24, which says, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. The Apostle John in 1 John 2.18 gives us the following warning. Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. Peter, being an apostle of Christ, also would have been included in Jude's list of apostles that warned us about these apostates. In fact, the alerting of false teachers is very similar from Peter and Jude. And that's why there's some confusion on which book was written first and which one borrowed from who. And we covered that much earlier on in our messages. But in 2 Peter 3, 3 through 4, he says, Know this, first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, All continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. I read verse 4 because the apostates that Jude is dealing with had no fear of the Lord's return and final judgment as we saw last week. When the Bible speaks of the last days, like it is here, it is talking about the time from Christ's ascension after his resurrection to the time he will come back again. So we are in the last days days. Now in Jude 18, it says that they were saying to you in the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lust. Jude reminds them that this was predicted, that ungodly people with their ungodly thinking and ungodly behavior would be present. Jude says these are mockers of God and they also mock Christ in his return. We see both in the Old Testament and the New Testament that mockers have always been among us. In Isaiah 28, 21 through 22, Israel is warned to not mock or scoff at what the Lord is doing. For It says in Isaiah 28, 21 through 22, For the Lord will rise up as at Mount Perizim. He will be stirred up as in the valley of Gibeon to do his task, his unusual task, and to work his work, to to work his work, his extraordinary work, and now 
do not carry on as scoffers, or your fetters will be made stronger. For I have heard from the Lord God of hosts of decisive destruction on all the earth. That's exactly what mockers do. They mock God and they mock his eventual destruction of them. And in the New Testament, we see that Christ was mocked. Matthew 28 Verses 28 through 31 says, They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they knelt before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spat on him and took the reed and began to beat him on the head. After they had mocked him, they took the scarlet robe off him and put his own garments back on him and led him away to crucify him. And then in verse 38 through 44, we read, At the time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priest also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now, if he delights in him. For he said, I am the Son of God. The robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. This is an incredible scene to behold. They mocked the very God who created them, and they had no fear of God. These mockers are the same type of apostates that Jude is dealing with. They not only mock God, but mock those that are being faithful in obedience to God. Their abuse of God's grace was their license to sin, and they mocked others who did not follow in their evilness. We will continue to see a growing apostate church the longer the Lord delays his return. I would assert that many visible churches today mock God in their lack of reverence, lack of biblical teaching, and lack of godly living. Just as we saw in my example of that young couple I shared about a few minutes ago, ago, that pastor had no reverence for God, no fear of God, no biblical view, and no desire of godly living. He mocked God in his reckless disregard of God's word. We also have people today that mock Christ's return. They look at the time span between Christ's first coming and say, where is your God? Why has he not come back if you are so sure he is coming back? Well, scripture tells us why he has been patient with this rebellious world. I know we referenced this passage last week, but I want to add a verse 10 to it. But let's look at 2 Peter 3, 8 through 10. It says, but do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, 
in which the heavens will pass away and with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Here we again see why the Lord delays his coming. It is for the sake of the elect. He is not slow about his promise, but rather he is patient and withholds final judgment on sinners until the last person elected to salvation comes to him. And just on a side commentary on this passage, because this passage has been so abused, let me just say, this is, this is not teaching a universal view or even a free will view of salvation when it comes to salvation. This has nothing to do with the atonement, by the way, as far as what it was designed for. And um, we need to understand that, that we can get that from the text itself, because it says in our passage, it says he is patient towards you, which is, he is talking to the elect. He's not talking to every person born. Many use this passage to say something that it's not. So I just wanted to make that very clear so you're not confused. And if you want to argue with me about that, I'll be happy to have lunch with you. It'll just be a great time regardless if we agree or not. But I'm very adamant that I am correct on that view. <laughs> but you can, I'm always willing to be challenged. So we live in a time which reminds me of Noah's time, no one taking the coming judgment as a serious fact, and they just continue partying as if nothing will happen. But as we see from last week and this week, his return is eminent and sure. And that's where we can have our steadfast hope and faith in, which we're going to see later in our message here. Let's move on to verse 19 of our passage where we read, these are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. We see our last three characteristics of the apostates in verse 19. They are divisive, they are worldly-minded, and they are devoid of the Spirit. First, they are divisive. Jude lays at the feet of these apostates the divisions that have happened in this body of Christ. People who are habitually self-willed self-focused and self-loved are divisive. They love to create chaos in the body of Christ. They brought division to this group and were at odds with the true followers of Christ. These are the ones that separate rather than unite the body of Christ. The Apostle Paul in Romans 16, 17, and 18 warns us with the following, now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. For such men are slaves not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. We must make a distinction between a difficult person and a divisive person, though. This is very important. I think if we're honest with ourselves, we would see that there are certain people, even within our body here, that we simply don't click with. They may be difficult to love, but the opposite may be true, and we may be the one that is having difficulty to love as we ought because of our own sin. I know personally 
I have been in the position where I have had a hard time with somebody's personality, but most of the time God has exposed that the issue is not them, it's me. I'm sure for some of you I am difficult to love too, but that's where we die to self and we love each other the way God would have us love each other. And let me say this too, when we don't do that, we rob ourselves of the great qualities and benefits that that person has that can bring into our life and help us to grow in Christ. The Apostle Paul in Romans is not dealing with simply difficult people, but he's dealing with divisive people. This man or woman is dangerous to the body of Christ. This person is the one that thrives on creating chaos. They are the opposite of what we are to be. We are to strive to have unity in the body of Christ, and it's always around what? His word, his correctly taught word. In Philippians 1, 27 through 28, we read, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel in, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but for salvation for you, and that too from God. Again, as I said before, there can, be only, can only be unity around the right doctrine, and that includes the right understanding of the gospel of God. Second, these people were not only divisive, but they were worldly. The apostates have their eyes on their own lustful desires and give no regard to the Lord or others. They are worldly-minded. Let's look at 1 John 2, 15 and 16, which says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. The writer of John makes the contrast clear to us. You cannot love the world and God too. You, we cannot serve two masters. Either our master will be this world or our master will be God. We are not to be like these apostates who serve their master, the devil. Matthew 6, 24 says from Jesus' own word, lips, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. And lastly, these apostates were devoid of the Spirit. These false teachers were devoid of any spiritual life. 1 Corinthians 2, 12 through 14 says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not ex accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. 
This is the ultimate problem with apostates. They are natural men, practicing only what their animal-like instincts lead them to, which is a life of licentious living. They are not believers, and we have nothing, and I mean nothing, in common with them. Gene Green, who's a commentator, says, Their impiety has its roots in the fact that they do not possess the transforming power of the Spirit of God in their lives. So why do we run to the world for our answers for life? And this may cut close to the the cloth, but I think it needs to. The unbeliever has nothing to offer us at all. It does not make sense to me when people run to worldly counselors that are not saved in order to deal with their struggles in life. These type of people have nothing to offer us because their worldview is totally opposite of ours. They are just like these apostates. They're worldly-minded with no thought of God in his word. And if that hits close to home, I'm sorry it needs to because we're running after the answers in the wrong place. And I love you guys enough to tell you that. These type of people have nothing to offer us, and we need to remember that. Now we come to verses 20 and 21. I'm excited about this part, because now we're getting into some good practical application for our sanctification. Paul, uh, Jude didn't just leave us with all of this negative tone of these apostates and what they're doing, but he is encouraging us here at the end of the book. He says in verse 20, starting at verse 20, but you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Jude Mount now makes a clear distinction between the false professors and the true believers. He uses those same words again, but you beloved, and he's bringing us again back to the beginning. You're the beloved because you have been called, because you have been put a special love upon you that he doesn't have for those that are not his, and he has kept you and will keep you to the end. What a beautiful truth that we need to rest in often. Jude now here gives us our marching orders. He just outlined that these apostates are divisive, worldly-minded, and devoid of the Spirit, but now he is pointing to our own practical sanctification. Jude encourages us to grow ourselves up in our most holy faith. So how do we build ourselves up? We see four ways from our text here how we build ourselves up. First, through the Word of God. Second, through prayer. Third, through love. And fourth, through hope. Our first command is building yourself up in your faith. In the Greek, this term, building yourself up, is in the present active participle, which means that this is a command that demands continuous action. We build ourselves up in the faith through study and meditating on the Word of God. God has given us everything to live out our Christian life for His glory. 2 Peter 1, 2 and 3 says, 
grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his, whole, by his own glory and excellence. This is going to be a lifelong pursuit of him, and we must make it our first priority. Again, it's a lifelong pursuit because the command is to continuously be doing this. God is not honored when we do not seek him as we should. Our lives are not in line with his will if we are not in his word because his word reveals his will to us. It's not that hard to figure out what God's will is. Open up the Bible and you will see it. We need to be exposing our minds to the word of God on a daily basis and then meditating on that word throughout the day. This is our responsibility, but God has also given us pastors and elders, and listen to this, and each other. Sometimes we put pastors and elders on a certain pedestal, but they're not. They're one of us, and we are important to each other too, and we need to be stimulating each other just like those pastors and elders do to us to a greater obedience to Christ. A pastor's desire to teach should not be to sit up here and, th- and so that you can think he's intelligent. But a pastor's desire to teach should flow out of his love, not only for the Lord, but for the body of Christ. He should strive vigorously to study God's word first for himself to be changed, for himself to be changed, and second, to feed the flock for their sanctification. A true shepherd is one that cares for the sheep he has been entrusted with and is willing to be poured out for them and be used in their sanctification. (coughs) Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, For this reason we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Paul is encouraged that these brothers and sisters at Thessalonica did not just receive the word, but they stayed in the word. The word performs its work in us as we are exposed to it. And we read in Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living, active, and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I am not, nor will I ever be mature enough to outgrow the word of God. I needed to do heart surgery on me every day. My thoughts and intentions need to be exposed so that I can repent of that which is sin and embrace that which is good. And your spouse may be able to expose some of your sin to you, but the word of God will expose all of your sin to you. If you are wanting to be holy, if, if you are wanting to be holy as God calls us to be holy, then you want and we want heart work to be done on us every day. We need to go into the heart surgeon every day and have surgery on our hearts. In Psalm 19, 7 through 11, David says, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. 
The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. You can just replace the word there, right? The word of the Lord is perfect. The word of the Lord is sure. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than the honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. David gives us several descriptives of what God, the word of God is here. This passage alone should fire us up to be in God's word every day. His word is sufficient for us. And the reason we flounder in life is because we're not in his word like we should be. And we're not hiding ourselves under that rock and letting him be that rock for us so that we do not get tossed by every wind of doctrine and by every issue and every circumstance that comes up in life. My heart's desire is to see us grow to be that mature people. Our second thing is we build ourselves up in prayer. Prayer is us talking to God. Just as we are to be reading and meditating on the word of God, our prayers should be thrown heavenward throughout the day. The Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5.17 tells us to pray without ceasing. He is commanding us to be a people that frequently are in communion with the Lord during the day. Some of you call your wives in the middle of the day to say hi, but you don't take the time with your Lord like you should. I'm guilty of that sometimes. In our small group, we have a group text that is pretty active most days, and it was active even this morning for a prayer request. We get requests often, and sometimes I have discounted some of the requests for a prayer because they seem so minor. But I was convicted of that because we are to bathe everything in prayer. Yes, I did repent of my wrong attitude. Prayer continues to push us to be dependent upon the Lord, not only in big things, but all things. And if we are doing that often during the day, we will grow in that dependence upon him and I thank the Lord that he used my dear sister in Christ and her cat to bring me to a conviction of this so thank you Aki <laughs> I don't usually call people out but God did use you greatly in my life in that area and again Paul instructs us in Philippians 4 6 and 7 and says be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Our third command is to be keeping ourselves in the love of Christ. Twice in our letter here, Jude tells us it is God who keeps us. Verse 1 says he keeps us at the end of the letter. In verse 24, it again says he keeps us. God is the one who keeps us and preserves us until our glorification and beyond. But now we are told to keep ourselves in the love of Christ. So how do we understand this? 
There is a tension in Scripture when it comes to the sovereignty of God in our responsibility. And I hope I don't bring confusion. I hope I bring some clarity here. Many err on one side or the other. One group thinking it is actually their work that is justifying them, disregarding God's sovereignty in their salvation. And the other group has a let go and let God attitude, a totally passive attitude that disregards our responsibility. These two truths actually are those, those two views are actually both extreme and wrong. We can begin to understand this by studying his word and understanding his mind more. The Bible teaches that God keeps us and we are also commanded to keep ourselves in the love of God. These two truths work side by side together. Philippians 2, 12 and 13 says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The key to this passage are the words, for it is God who is at work in you. Paul commands us to be sanctified, and this is a present command, just as our initial salvation is a supernatural work of God, taking a spiritually dead man and making them alive in Christ, so is our sanctification. We have a responsibility. If we are true followers of Christ, we not only have the ability, but we will obey the Lord. But as we are actively pursuing Christ and killing our sin, we know it is what? God doing that work in us. If one does not desire to obey God on a habitual basis, it leads us to only one conclusion. They are not one of his. Sanctification is not an optional activity. It is the work of the Holy Spirit as we strive for him each day. If God did not save you and change your heart to have a heart for all that is good in him, you would have no ability or desire to live for him. And that doesn't change at the moment of your salvation. That is what follows through, through your glorification. It is his work. I would say and have said that not only is our justification all from him, but so is our sanctification. We cannot change ourselves unless his Holy Spirit in us is changing us. Louis Burkhoff said, sanctification is a work of the triune God, but it is ascribed more particularly to the Holy Spirit in Scripture. Though man is privileged to cooperate with the Spirit of God, he can do this only in virtue of the strength which the Spirit imparts to him from day to day. The spiritual development of man is not a human achievement, but a work of divine grace. Man deserves no credit whatsoever for that which he contributes to it instrumentally. So we see here we have a responsibility in our sanctification, even as we realize it is him who is causing us to be sanctified. As Burkhoff put it, the spiritual development of man is not a human achievement, but a work of divine grace. We can only take credit for our sin. Everything and anything good coming from us is his grace and his ultimate work in us. This is why I've said from the 
beginning of our salvation, it is monergistic. The right now of our sanctification is monergistic. And our final glorification is monergistic. It is all his work in us. Yet we do have that responsibility, as I said, and many passages point us to that responsibility. We read in Colossians 3, 16 and 17, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. This ties the word of Christ directly to our ability to glorify him. It all begins with the word. The word of God brings wisdom to us, which by the application of the Holy Spirit will cause us to be more like Christ. I know of many of you have heard this over and over, but you need to be reminded. It's easy to get lazy in our walk with Christ and lose that passion. We are not to ever be satisfied where, we're, where we are at in our walk. There should always be a push to run the race well, and it begins with God's word. And finally, our fourth command is to be waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Unlike the apostates, we are not waiting for eternal judgment, but are anxiously looking for the time when we will be with Christ forever. Because of his mercy and love for us, our eternity with him is guaranteed we cannot lose our position in Christ and our salvation will be completed when we are glorified. We should have a longing to be home with the Lord. As this world and others tear us we, apart, we need to be aware that this is not our home. I simply don't understand any believer that wants to stay here more than they want to be with the Lord. Honestly, that baffles me. The Apostle Paul in Philippians 1, 24, 1 through 24 said, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor to me. I do not know which to choose, but I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Notice Paul's motive to be on the earth was to see those around him sanctified. You may say that you have kids and you have responsibilities, but the reality is God will take care of all of that if he takes you home. But you should have a longing to be home with the Lord. And the Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 8, the following, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all that loved his appearing. So we are waiting anxiously with great joy for our final glorification with him. So what are some takeaways today of what we've taught? First is... Expose your heart to the word of God on a daily basis. Let his word saturate your life. Some of you need to go to your trunk on Monday and pull out your Bible and not neglect it during the week. If you are doing well, keep excelling, excelling still more. 
But if you are struggling and you need some help, I would be happy to help you figure out a way to get a regular diet of God's word. So first, expose your heart to the word of God daily. Second, keep growing to have a greater hatred of your sin. It is easy to not take our sins seriously. It is easy to um, live in those respectable sins that we don't think are a big deal. But every sin is a big deal to God. Let us not be characterized as the apostates, as worldly people, because we are fa failing to kill our sin. As God, ask God to expose your heart to your sin. Repent of it and then make no provision for that sin. God uses his word to expose our sin. So this actually should our, be our prayer as it was David's in Psalm 139, 23 and 24. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and, my, and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Unlike the apostates example, we need to continue to see our sin and not defile our flesh and not to be like the world. And our third application is be with others that love God. We are influenced by those around us. If we isolate ourselves from each other, we will grow weaker and weaker in our walk. If you're not in a small group, I would encourage you to do that. We need the body of Christ, and for there to be application of the one another's in our lives, we must be spending time together. We are beat down by the world, and we need to be built up by each other. Be a Barnabas, a son of encouragement to each other. And sometimes that can just be through a text of encouraging a brother or a sister. The... the um, you can look up Hebrews 10, 23 through 25. That's a great verse of us not forsaking. I need to get to the final application, and that is being transparent with each other. Don't let your pride get in the way when you are struggling. We are weak and we have not arrived. There is no one in this room that is perfect. Among believers, we should have the freedom to confess those sins we struggle with and have confidence that there will be not be condemnation. But instead, we will find a brother or sister that will walk alongside of us, tell us the truth, and help us conquer our sin. James 5.16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Please make sure that the person you are being transparent with is a mature believer who you can have confidence in that will not share or use what you tell them for gossip or evil. If we are in a relationship like that, we have a responsibility to not broadcast others' sin. Pride has to be killed in order for you to do this, but this is what you need. And I would put prayer here too. Pray for one another. Pray for growth in Christ for each other. And let me end with this. 1 Thessalonians 4.1 Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just, listen to this, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. Let us be a people that love our Lord, pursue him in his word, be a people of prayer, make no provision for our flesh, call out false teachers, and have a great love for each other. Keep excelling still more, my dearly beloved. 
Let us be the church God calls us to be for his glory. Lord God, we thank you for this time. We do pray for Breck as he um, prepares to bring us the word. And then for this afternoon that we can practice exactly what we just talked about. Fellowshipping with one another, encouraging and stimulating one another to greater um, obedience and good works for your glory. We thank you and praise you for this church and for each believer here in Christ's name. Amen.